Hello, I'm Eugene Chausovsky, a senior Eurasia analyst at Stratfor, and this podcast is brought to you by Stratfor Worldview, our premier digital publication for objective geopolitical intelligence and analysis. Individual, team, and enterprise memberships are available at worldview.stratfor.com slash subscribe. The adaptation of building levees and moving north, that kind of thing, might not have taken place yet. But I think we will have made great progress on the emissions problem. And I think one of the main solutions that we should expect is that the energy sector will be much more electricity dependent 50 years from now. Welcome to the Stratfor Talks podcast from Stratfor.com. I'm Faisal Pervez. Today, we're talking about the true interconnectedness of the world's power and the rapid change in global structure that is underway. But I'm not talking about competing great powers in the world order. I'm talking about energy and its role in both accelerating civilization and threatening it. That's the premise of the new book, Power Trip, The Story of Energy by Michael Weber. He's the chief science and technology officer at Engie, a global energy and infrastructure company, and a professor of mechanical engineering at the University of Texas at Austin. Weber writes that there is no other physical resource so deeply interlaced with all life on Earth. It is also central to the seven pillars of geopolitics, underpinning the geography, politics, economics, security, history, society, and technology of every country in the world. Dr. Weber recently stopped by the Stratfor studio to speak with the team about energy and to share some thoughts with senior global analyst Matthew Bay. Here's their conversation. I'm Matthew Bay. I'm a senior global analyst here at Stratfor, and today with me is um, Dr. Michael Weber um, to talk about his new book, Power Trick, The Story of Energy. So thank you for coming here. Thank you for um, doing this podcast with us. Um, I guess my first question that I, want to, that I always like to start off with when talking about other people's books is, you know, what was your intent behind, behind the book? So I wrote Power Trip really from the motivation of trying to reach a bigger audience with the way I teach and think about energy. I've been teaching energy classes at the University of Texas for well over a decade, pulling together different stories and ways to share some of the lessons of energy with a broader audience. And writing a book is a way to reach people beyond the students in my classroom. So that was the main motivation. And then has your previous books also been that similar target in the audience on that? Yeah, same kind of thing with my other book. The first book I wrote was Thirst for Power, Energy, Water, and Human Survival, which really looks at the energy water nexus or the energy we use for water and water for energy. Also targeting a general audience. doesn't have equations. It's not looking at PhD engineers. It's looking for people who care about the world or humanity or energy and water and resource management. So your book, it talks a lot about, you know, five different different demographic problems that everybody's facing um, and, and challenges and also a bunch of different energy trends and the kind of, you know, the nexus between them. Can you kind of explain on that? Yeah, I see six demographic trends and three technology trends that are very relevant for energy. The six demographic trends are population growth and economic growth, urbanization, industrialization, electrification, and motorization, which means there are more of us getting richer, moving into cities from farm to factory, and then once we get access to energy and wealth, wanting electric devices or appliances, as well as mobility with cars. So those are the main trends that cause a lot of shifts in the energy system in terms of what we consume, how much we consume, and what we consume for. 
On top of that are three technology trends of decreasing resource intensity for goods and services, increasing information intensity for the same goods and services, and increasing customization or decentralization. So those technology trends overlaid on the demographic trends mean everything's changing for energy. Which continent in the world or which area in the world do you think is you know best suited or, or the, where the challenges that they have that are beyond those kinds of challenges, say, for example, Africa, um, is best suited to take advantage of some of those trends? And which ones do you think are the least able to take advantage of some of those trends? Most of those demographic trends I mentioned are really for the developing world. They're not for Europe and the United States or Japan in terms of population growth, economic growth, and moving from farm to factory and from rural areas to cities. So that's mostly a developing world uh, situation. And for them, the issue is primarily around energy access. In the United States and Europe, it might be around decreasing the impacts for energy use. But for those other regions, just getting access to enough energy would make a big difference. So in your book, you talk about how in the uh, 1800s, Chicago, the Great Fire, that allowed it um, to build up and basically become a modern city by essentially starting from scratch. Um, today, as you look at you know a, a, a city that's poised to take advantage of the new technologies as energy is changing, um, technology is changing, um, which cities are the, you know, the top three or four that you're looking at? This is a great question. I don't have a good answer. I, I do think cities are where the global leadership will come from. The Paris Climate Accords help bring countries together, but important countries like the United States are not really cooperating. And that means the leadership might be tricky from a federal or national level, and we might see more city leadership. Cities like Los Angeles or New York are bigger than entire countries in many cases, and they're taking action. So I think we should look to cities for some of these solutions. Which cities, it's hard to say. Uh, Singapore is doing some really cool things as a nation state, as a city state. There are Midwestern cities in the United States that have aging infrastructure that need to reinvest. They might do it the right way. Big cities that have real problems like L.A. or New York are saying the right things and starting to invest. But it might come from uh, these cities that haven't built their infrastructure yet, say in Southeast Asia or Sub-Saharan Africa. If they can get access to the money they need, then they'll probably build it the right way because they can build from scratch. They don't have to go retrofit. Are there any cities that you actually think are the least suited in sort of the opposite direction? <laughs> cities that are least suited. I mean, so there are cities where the population density is so high. I'm thinking like major cities in India where it might be impossible to solve. Just, it's so hard. There are so many people and so many basic needs are not met. It might be hard to leapfrog towards something smarter. So I don't know. Great question. I think this is the question of, of the century in some respects, and I don't have good answers for you. Well, let's, let's play out the, you know, the question of the century, I guess. So in 50 years from now, um, how do you think that relationship between, say, energy, demographics is going to evolve? Um, in an a optimistic scenario, you know, we'd be able to solve a lot of the climate change problems. Uh, but what do you think is more realistic within that? I think we will make a lot of headway in solving the climate change problems, at least in terms of slowing emissions. So I think uh, we can tackle that part. The adaptation of building levees and moving north, that kind of thing, might not have taken place yet. But I think we will have made great progress by 50 years from now on the emissions problem. And I think one of the main solutions that we should expect is that the energy sector will be much more electricity dependent 50 years from now. The electricity will be a much bigger part of our life, and that will make it easier to decarbonize because it's not that hard to decarbonize the power sector. So a big thing about, you know, um, whenever somebody in the United States talks about the, the, the new Green Deal kind of thing, it's always a question of like, okay, how are we going to pay for it? Um, so this is obviously a big problem when, when talking about any kind of transformation. I mean, everything has been expensive in the past when we transformed when we transformed our economies to become more dependent on data. We had to have years of investment into, you know, building up the data infrastructure. Um, how do you propose, like, solving that challenge? Because to me, I mean, we can have all these fantastic fantastic dreams, but, you know, paying for it, who's going to be willing to pay for it, who's going to vote to have their money be the one spending on it, it's a public good, right? Um, how do you see that problem being solved? This wouldn't be the first expensive thing we've done in the United States. We've made many expensive investments to win wars or to build interstate highways or to build out a data infrastructure, as you said, or to build out the energy system in the first place. So we've done expensive things many times. That's not 
what's hard. What's hard is figuring out who pays and who benefits. And if there's a perceived mismatch between who pays and who benefits, then that's where it gets difficult. In the case of the interstate highways, we all paid, but we all benefited. So it wasn't that hard of an argument, actually. In World War II, it was slow for us to get involved because we knew we paid, but we weren't sure we benefit. And finally, we were convinced we would benefit, and then we engaged. And so I think that's the issue with climate change is we're worried that we'll pay but won't be the ones that benefit. And in some respects, there's a lot of truth to that because the people who will suffer the most haven't been born yet. And when they are born, it'll be halfway around the world and Bangladesh and other places. So we feel like we'll be paying other people will benefit, and that makes it a little more difficult. But what's been happening over the last few years as the solutions have come forward and have been higher performing and cheaper and accessible, we're starting to realize, like, oh, we can pay to do this, and we will ourselves benefit because we'll get something we prefer, a car with better acceleration or a cleaner air shed in our city, that kind of thing. So as the alignment happens between who pays and who benefits, it gets a lot easier. You talk a lot about, you know, solving a lot of the problems moving forward from here, whether it be, you know, uh, how do we store different energy for the electricity grid? How do we deal with um, decarbonization? Which one do you think is the most challenging from an engineering standpoint because of your background? As an engineer, I think the most fundamental question we have to answer for ourselves is whether we're going to replace the gas in the infrastructure or replace the gas infrastructure. And by that, I mean natural gas. We use natural gas as a source of heat for cooking and water heating in our homes. We use it for chemicals and factories. We use it for power generation. And it's pretty clean, but not perfectly clean. So we either need to replace that gas with a cleaner form of gas, which might be biogas or gas manufactured from the atmosphere or something like that, or replace that gas infrastructure with something else, maybe a hydrogen infrastructure or methanol or ammonia or electricity. And that's an important multi-trillion dollar question. Are we going to replace the gas or replace the gas infrastructure to achieve the same goods and services. Um, thank you, Dr. Weber. This is clearly going to be a, a fascinating question to watch evolve over the next coming decades. Thank you very much. In Power Trip, the story of energy, Michael Weber takes us on a global trek to explore the very real energy and climate crisis facing the planet and people. He argues that an energy crisis with imminent global risk is real, but solvable. We'll include details on how to purchase the book in the show notes, along with links to Stratfor analysis on the geopolitics of energy. And keep your eye out for Weber's upcoming series on PBS. If you're interested in learning how Stratfor can help you with analytical tools to visualize and anticipate those areas in the world where your interests and operations are at greatest risk, be sure to visit us at stratfor.com slash enterprise. If you have a question about this podcast or even an idea for the next one, please email us at podcast at stratfor.com. And please take a moment to leave a review on the podcast page in iTunes or wherever you listen. We really appreciate your feedback. For more geopolitical intelligence, links, and fun facts about what goes into forecasting world events, be sure to follow us on Twitter at Stratfor. Thanks for listening.